We, uh, this Christmas season, uh, one of the words that you may hear often is Emmanuel, which is Hebrew for uh, God, God with us, uh, that God has come down, God has come near, God has shown himself more intimately, in more vulnerability, in more reality than we could ever imagine, than we could ever discern, than we could ever know from the words, from the stories, from what's been told to us about God up to this point. Do you remember last week we looked at certainty? And certainty is not necessarily a bad thing, it's a false thing. Because certainty is saying, I have all the information that there is on this person, on this topic, on this subject, and therefore I am able to know this is who this person is. This is what this situation is, this is the ultimate. We're all works in progress. And so uh, with many things in life, we can say, yeah, two plus two is four. I am certain that is true. Uh, I, I, I had bacon for breakfast. Science isn't going to prove that, but I'm certain. Um, if it was a different day, I could have said that. Uh, there, you know, there's, there's, there's things that we can know, but when it comes to God, when it comes to a transcendent, our creator far beyond us, what we do is we take everything that we know in the way in which we feel it, in the way in which it's been put to us, in our families, in our schools, in, in, in our workplaces, with our neighbors, and, and we say, this is all that I have. Maybe we grew up in a family that was very performance-based, where you had to earn attention, earn affection, that it was through achievement, it was through applying yourself, and you were a good child if you did these things, and you were bad if you did these things. Well, you will be certain that the God that you are seeking is exacting, and is demanding, and is looking for you to mess up, and looking for a reason to cut you down, and you have to earn your place in the kingdom. Maybe you grew up in a family, or maybe this was reinforced in relationships or other things, where, where there was absentee, um, absenteeism, physically, emotionally, the intimacy was not there, it was surface level only, it was dangerous to go any deeper, dangerous for the other, dangerous for you or both. And, and if that is, is what you grew up with, then you will be certain that the God that you are seeking really has better things to do. And that you have to make a noise, you have to be in pain, or you have to really do well for God to notice you. And there's going to be difficulty. You see, we're dealing with broken lives, mediated through broken people to broken people. And one thing we realize in all relationships, hurting people hurt people. And so what's been mediated to us through God are bits and pieces that are somewhat true, but out of context. Uh, it's like a mirror that's been broken and shattered. There's a lot of jagged edges, and we're putting the pieces together trying to see what we look like and God looks like with a lot of cut fingers and, and a lot of missing pieces. And so that's all we have to go on emotionally, intellectually, with experience in life. So we are certain this is the way life is. We are certain this is who God is and what's expected of me. The problem is when it comes to God, we cannot be certain. See, the people living in a great darkness had the word of God. And the darkness there, it's not just they were ignorant. Uh, this is the same word that's used in Psalm 23, Tzalamawet. Uh, the darkness unto death. This foreboding sense, it's broken, I'm doomed, I'm judged. That's the situation in which we find humanity. God gave us his truth, but what did people take? They took God's truth and it was mediated through a lot of brokenness and hurt. So the way that they were certain God worked were through other people's agendas 
were their own not measuring up, trying to fill in the broken places, and God got bent out of shape and out of frame. So God showed up, more, making himself more vulnerable and more intimacy than we could imagine that we would experience God with skin on. We would experience God walking in our shoes, in the dust of our life, that we would know he gets it and he could reveal himself much more as he is, as we can experience him rather than we suppose him to be through, through what's been mediated uh, in a broken way. Use this example uh, a couple Christmas Eves ago, but there's, I found no better way of demonstrating incarnation and really setting up uh, God come near. How many military, foreign military engagements is the United States currently involved in? Anyone know? If you, if you said north of 30, you'd be, you'd be correct, okay? We, we're a lot more involved than uh, just the, the big three that we get on the news. There, there's involvements all over the place, many of which are known, many of which are cooperation, many of which are, are different partnerships, uh, a lot of which are secret operations. One of them, there were, there were a number of Americans who were kidnapped um, somewhere in East Asia, and, um, and that it was a bad situation. There were some bad dudes doing some bad things to them. And negotiations had broken down. There's no way they're going out. None of this was made public. And so the president signed an executive order to send special forces in to uh, rescue uh, these people. Uh, they went in and they, they fought hard and they killed a lot of uh, people that were um, uh, guarding them. And they broke into the prison compound. Uh, it had been about six months that these people had been there, and they'd been brutalized. They'd been dehumanized. They had been held in terror. They'd been tortured, uh, and they saw no hope. And so in the, the, the dark of night, there was all these explosions and screaming and gunshots, uh, flashbang grenade. The, the door comes open. Uh, there's, a blind, there's, there's, there's light, and everyone's bewildered, and the people are shouting in English, we're, we're American soldiers. We've come, to, we've come to take you home. Please come with us. We've come to rescue you. Your government's come to, to get you, and everyone was terrified. All, all the Americans were shrinking back from them and, and were, were just, just cowering and would not go. And the mission commander on, on the ground was saying, guys, we've got two minutes and we've got to get out of here. There's a whole lot of reinforcements coming and it's game over. Okay, helicopters leaving in two minutes. And they were, they, were trying, they were trying to pull the people out and they were fighting them and kicking them and they would have nothing to do with them. Because all that they had known, all that they had experienced was anyone in power, anyone with the guns, anyone standing over them, anyone with freedom was there to hurt them, to demean them. Uh, people had been bringing them out, hey, you're going to be free, and then they'd beat them and throw them back. And it was just to break them down. That's all they had known. So one, one, of, the, one of the soldiers um, uh, decided to do something very, very risky. And so he took off his helmet and he removed his body armor and he, and he put his, uh, his service weapon down. And he, was, he just hands up. And he walked over to one of the prisoners and laid down next to him, put his arm around him, and pulled him close so he could feel his heartbeat. And he said, we've come for you. We mean you no harm. We are, we, we, we are Americans just like you, and, and we've come to rescue you. Please come with us. And it was only after holding this person for a minute where the person could stop shaking, where the person could feel the heartbeat, feel the intimacy, feel the warmth, that they're able to say, okay, 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 you're real. I get it. I trust you. And everyone is able to follow them, and they're able to come back. This is what God did with us. We were certain that God was there to destroy us, that we didn't measure up, that, that religion was there to make us feel guilty. Now, we all collect different things, baseball cards, stamps. I, I have enough guilt to start my own religion. So, um, <laughs> so I got plan B, you know. I, 
crazy cult leader somewhere. I mean, guilt's easy to, to, to work the leather, levers, but that's what we've known. And so when God came near, when God manifests himself, what do we see in his word? The people freak out. The people are terrified. The people demand, no, no, somebody else. Moses, you go. Somebody, anybody. We cannot be near God. We're terrified. He's going to get us. He knows how bad I am. He knows how broken I am. He's going to call me out. And so I feel condemned. I feel condemned. We're going to look at a story in John chapter 8 that absolutely illustrates this in the most beautiful way possible. Yeah, I know I should be preaching this on April 20th, but whatever. Um, point being, we're looking at what is uh, typically referred to as the woman caught in adultery. Now, and I need to make a few comments here. Depending on what version of the Bible is near and dear to you, um, what, what version of the Bible do you guys read? NIV, NIV okay. Others? NIV is a great one. Others? King James, good. Others? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and LT, King James, LT, there's a lot of good ones out there, and, and they're different. What's the best translation of God's word? You are. Right? What's the purpose of God's word? To transform us, to translate who God really is into the lives of others. So the purpose of God's word is to transform us. So whatever version speaks to your heart, it's good. It's good. We've got scholars saying, hey, we know where the text is and what going and everyone kind of speaks to us a little differently. It's good. You can trust it. But there's one slam dunk in, in, in textual criticism that most every scholar, liberal conservative, agrees on, and that's John did not write uh, John 7.53 to um, 8 verse 11, that that was not originally part of John at all. Language is different. Everything's different. It didn't show up in any of the early manuscripts. We don't have it in any copies of the Bible until close to the Middle Ages. Um, somebody, it, it was an independent story. Uh, other versions, people are sticking this in Luke because it sounded more like uh, Luke's writing and teaching and grammar. And so there's a lot of versions of, of uh, manuscripts that have this story stuck in Luke. Others stuck them in John. Some stuck them earlier in John. But by and large, uh, by the time we started rolling through the Middle Ages, most uh, contemporary versions uh, had this story in it. Most people would agree it's an absolutely true story. John ends his gospel saying, look guys, I gave you a very selective history. And, and as we've been looking at, John has very clear uh, purposes in how he wants to display the Lord. But he said if all the things that Jesus ever did were included and written down, there wouldn't be enough room in the whole world to contain all the books. So there's plenty of other stuff. Um, and most people would say this is an independent account of what Jesus really did, that it was so near and dear to people, it was passed down, and it, it was included. A, a scribe's going, man, John messed up. Well, that wasn't John's point. And so he took this story probably from Luke, and, and it, was, it was stuck here. So we're going to teach on sexual morality from other places in Scripture. It's, the, it's a consistent teaching across the board. But this illustrates how does God respond when we are helpless, when we are hopeless, when we're busted, when we're called out, when we're afraid. And we see truly God come near, God in the flesh, and how does he really respond beyond the certainties that we've arrived at, closing God out of the, out of the picture. We're going to look at a very, very straightforward and very simple truth. Jesus did not come to condemn. He came safe. Jesus did not come to condemn. He came to save. See, he leaves the condemnation up to the church. 
had that one covered already. Sinners in the hands of an angry church. All right, let's get into the text. So. Then they all went home. That's kind of connecting it. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn, he appeared again in the, te- in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees, that's code for the leaders. That's code for the Bible thumpers. That's code for the people that know the word of God. They are certain this is what God has said and they will brook no compromise to make sure God's will is done in everyone else's life. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. Uh, the, the text there emphasizes that in the very act of adultery, caught her red-handed. At adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have basis for accusing him. Okay, so what's going on here? Uh, This actually, where it's placed in the story, and the reason it's placed here is because everyone recognizes this is during the last um, couple weeks of Jesus' life. Uh, There's this great... um, host of festivals that are going on in Jerusalem. A lot of people are there camping out and everyone would come to the temple courts. So Jesus was staying with Lazarus, Martha, and Mary, uh, Mount of Olives and Bethany, and he would walk in. You know, there's like a huge sport event going on or a concert or something. You can't get a hotel room anywhere. And so you got to go kind of out in the sticks. So that's what was going on. And so Jesus was in Bethany about six miles away and he'd walk in every day and then walk back. So that was his base of operations. And he'd go there to teach. He'd go there to share the word and people were coming up and asking him all sorts of things and it said the crowd hung on every word he said the crowd was delighted and how they said we've heard this stuff but when this guy speaks he speaks words of life he speaks with authority it doesn't it's not a club across the head it's not the rod (laughs) but it's the staff what did David say about the rod and the staff they comfort me how many people have felt the rod from somebody else yeah, it's, mis- it's misused. You see, the staff was to get the sheep out of danger. You know, that's that hook. That's like when somebody's take- talking too long on stage and they get the thing across their neck. Um, that's the, sta- that's the um, staff. The rod was a club, a cudgel, and it was to, to put the smack down on the wolves that tried to get the sheep. The rod was never used on the sheep. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Care from within, protection from without. And, and so they, they were wanting to, um, they were wanting to put the, the, the smack down, the condemnation. Anyway, they were asking him these questions and they were trying to trap him. They weren't interested in what does the law really say. They were interested on how can we get you caught in a dilemma to where damned if you do, damned if you don't. And they've been trying this all along. We have this in other gospels where um, who do you say we should pay taxes for? Uh, who, who, to whom should we pay taxes? And they knew it was a trap. It's a trap. Admiral Akbar shows up. It's a trap. Um, where, where we have this, um, you know, don't take the bait, Jesus. And he saw through this. And because he's saying, look, if, if we pay taxes to Caesar, there's going to be an insurrection among the Jews. If, if we say we shouldn't pay taxes, the Romans are coming in and cleaning house. So hold up a denarius. Whose picture's on it? Caesar's. Give to Caesar's what is Caesar's. God's what is God's. It's on you. Um, on whose authority are you doing this? Well, if you say your authority, you're, you're going to be a false prophet if it's God, you know. And so they're trying to, trying to catch him up. And so he asked him, well, whose authority was John the Baptist? <gasps> he switched the tables on him. 
if we say from God, he'd say, why didn't you listen to him? If we say we, from, um, he's not, nothing, the people are going to stone us because they think he's a prophet. So they said, uh, um, I got to check my notes. Um, I'll get back to you on that. And he said, all right, well, I'm not going to answer your question then. And so they, were, they kept trying to, to, to bring this up. And, and the one we find right here is this one. There was a woman caught um, in adultery, and uh, they bring her publicly, which you're not, <laughs> there, there were all sorts of things that were bent out of shape, but they bring her before all these people, and it was shame, it was humiliation, and it was this untenable dilemma. Okay, what was the trap that they were trying to get him into? It was this. If he said, no, no, you are not to do this, then they'd say, okay, well, you're turning over the law of Moses, stone him. And if he says, yes, you're do this, then they call the Romans in and go, this guy's doing uh, execution. Uh, take him out. Or he's going to say, but you've preached love and peace and forgiveness, and now you're saying, yeah, well, but the law still says this. So they thought it was an airtight case. We got him on this one. How are you going to answer? Damned if you do, damned if you don't. Okay, this story, I'm not sure how, if you're familiar with it, how you sort of envisioned it playing out with this woman brought in, what she looks like, absolutely terrified, no right, she's busted, men are angry, they're, 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 they're fixing for a fight, they want blood, and, and they're treating her uh, like, like property. Here's where this story actually takes a darker turn. They said, does not the law of Moses command that we stone such women. Deuteronomy 22, 21 makes the only pr uh, provision for a stoning, case of execution, for, for a certain type of uh, adultery, a certain type of unfaithfulness. Uh, Deuteronomy 22 says anyone who's married caught in adultery, then the two must be killed. It doesn't specify how. So these were, who were they? Pharisees to the law. So do you think they knew their Deuteronomy 22, 21? Okay, what they were referring to was that verse, and it said, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone. There's only one place, such women, such women, women in this category who, if guilty, would be guilty of stoning. What was that category? Virgins who were betrothed to be married. Now, in Hebrew culture, with arranged marriages, with low life expectancy, with a bazillion other things going on, that would typically mean 13 or 14-year-old. And so this is a girl. They're saying women because legally that was a status, but there's only one provision for somebody to be stoned, and that was a virgin betrothed. So like Mary, for example, 13, 14 years old. So when Mary said, not my will, Lord, but yours be done, she knew she was in the one category that was going to be a brutal execution. And unlike what we picture with uh, perhaps the life of Brian or something like that, where the Jehovah, and everyone's throwing stones, uh, actual biblical stoning was very different. Uh, what was prescribed in the Mishnah, which is sort of a commentary on the Old Testament, you bring the guilty person to a hill, uh, the witnesses read the charges, they were the actual witnesses, then they push the push person off the cliff, about a 20 to 50 foot drop. If they're still alive, then the first witness takes a rock, as large as they could carry, stands over the cliff and drops it on their chest. If the person's still alive, then the second witness takes a big rock, stands over them, and they keep dropping these giant rocks until they're dead. Okay, the whole throwing stones and that, like what happened in Acts chapter 7 with Stephen, that was mob violence. They were trying to do, be a little more to the, to the law when they tried to stone Jesus in Capernaum, when he said, today the scripture's been fill, fulfilled in your presence. Why? The spirit of the Lord is upon me, anointed me to pre preach good news, sight to the blind, release to the captives. Release to the captives. And the people couldn't hear it. 
but we want justice. We want justification. I'm okay. I've earned this. How can this be? So they sought to throw him off a cliff, but his hour had not yet come, and he walked away. So that's the situation. That's what's going on here. We have a 13, 14-year-old girl absolutely terrorized. Uh, We have these angry men seeking to make the case, but they were not interested in judgment. They could care jack about the law of Moses. They were certain they were right. They were certain this is how God rolled, and they wanted to make sure that Jesus admitted this as well. So again, either way, he's going to be in trouble. How does Jesus respond? But Jesus bent down. Um, the, uh, the sense is he was sort of in a squatting or, or sitting position already. And when it says he bent down, it wasn't he was standing. He sat down and he started doing this. He's going to stand up and talk to them later. Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. What do you think Jesus was writing in the ground? Only seminary students know. <laughs> Especially first-year seminary students. They'll, they'll tell you exactly what he was writing. But beyond that, um, some commentators have said because he was sitting down and he could only write so many Hebrew letters without moving, about 16, uh, he could have been writing something like from, from Isaiah, everyone who perverts righteousness will be like dust in the end. Maybe. Uh, maybe he was taking the Roman tradition of, hey, you're, you're asking me to adjudicate. I write the sentence, and then I stand up. Maybe. Maybe he was writing the specific sins of the accusers. But um, as we're going to see in a bit, I think that's probably the least likely possibility. That's the most popular answer, right? All, all these things, I saw what you did last, you know, whatever. Um, and like, whoa, <laughs> it's candid camera. <laughs> I didn't know the police had their cameras on. <laughs> um, but, but I don't, I honestly, I think of all the suggestions, that's probably the least likely. Um, the one I like was he was so ticked off at these guys, he needed time to compose himself. And so he was just like, <sighs> Lord, I knew this was going to be tough, but woo! What's the hardest fight to back down from? The one you can win, right? Because it's your ego, it's not your ability. The, the, the great big, you know, the, the Mike Tyson who's in your face. Whoa! Oh, sorry, my bad dog. Yeah, you're right. That's an easy fight to back down from. But the one where you can win, you are the hardest one to get over. Think Jesus could have won that fight? Absolutely. Hardest fight to back down from. So maybe he just needed some time to just compose himself. Maybe he was taking time to pray. Everything I do, everything I see, everything I see, I do. Everything I hear the Father say, I say. And so it was a sense of, Lord, intimacy. How do you, how do, how do you want to make the most of this? People are certain we need to get beyond that. See, what the law required, as I said, were the witnesses were the ones that had to cast the first stone, the ones that actually saw what was going on. And there's two requirements in order to be a witness, according to the law. 
See, we, we, we take things out of context, and that's okay. God, God blesses that. Where two or three are gathered together, there the Lord is in your midst. What does that have to do with? What's the context? Where two or three are gathered together, there I am in your midst. The word prayer is not used in that chapter at all. Prayer, praying, intercession, nothing. Nothing has nothing to do with prayer. It has to do with judgment. It has to do with justice. It has to do with when two or three witnesses, it's talking about the exact same place in Deuteronomy as, as is being brought up here. When two or three witnesses are gathered together to render judgment, this is what actually happened. Then the Lord is there to adjudicate. Then the Lord is there in your midst to say, what I saw happened, what these witnesses are saying happened is as though I saw it. Now, if what the witnesses say isn't what I saw, those witnesses are in some hot water. If the witnesses are convinced, two things, the two requirements, that they actually saw what they saw and they're true witnesses and that their hearts are pure, we want to serve justice and we're just giving testimony and there's no ulterior motives, then God is there in the midst and he will he will render judgment as the people render judgment. And the reason that verse is there of saying, you better be darn sure, dang sure, heck, is where gosh darns people who don't believe in him. You better be darn sure that you saw what you saw and that your heart is pure. Because I saw what went down and I see your heart. And so if you're not aligning with me, remember, I am there in your midst to render judgment, and the judgment's going to fall on you rather than the accuser. And so we have this great thing, oh, we're two, let's pray together. When two or three are gathered together, the Lord's in your midst. Well, what's the corollary of that? When you're on your own, you're on your own. Is God in your midst <laughs> when, uh, depending how many voices you have, right? Is God in your midst when, uh, when you're alone? absolutely intimate, present, fully there. Is God any more there when there's two or three people? No, because the context isn't prayer. The context isn't intimacy. The context is justice. And so the reminder is in what people knew, you had better be clean in your heart and you better be clean in what you're testifying. And so that's what Jesus is referring to, the exact same thing here with the witnesses. Are you clear in your heart? Okay, here's the weird thing. Last time I checked adultery required at least two people, right? I mean, if you're on your own, it's called something different, okay? It, I, I mean, adultery requires two, right? It's the tango part. It takes two to tango or commit adultery. So it says, we caught this woman. They brought the woman before her. But the law is super clear. Both the man and the woman are to be taken out in public by the city gate and stoned. They have done a horrible thing upon Israel, this category. So if they were caught, if she was caught in the very act, the witnesses saw the dude, right? Maybe he was, maybe he was a track runner. Maybe he was super fast. Maybe he's just, I love you, babe. I, whoa, time to go. Bye. Woo! Out the door. And he got away. But the witnesses saw him. Okay, Jerusalem's a small town. There's 25,000 people. Okay, now it's swollen with, um, with a party crowd and everybody coming in. But everybody knows everyone's business. And so the teachers of the law that caught this girl somehow, um, they knew the dude. But yet he wasn't being brought there. So already there's a perversion of justice. If they were truly interested in the letter of the law, even if they were misapplying it, if they were truly interested, they would have at least brought both parties there. We caught this dude and this girl. This is what the law says. What do you say? But they didn't do that at all. 
And so already we see in anybody, you know, reading this who knew Deuteronomy is going, whoa, 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 whoa. There's no justice. There's another agenda going on here. It's a, it's a trap. It says the older left first. Because what he's saying here is the person without sin, literally the person without guilt. Often we, we see this as the person without sin throw the first stone. And we often use that as, as, a, as, a, as a phrase. Um, you know, something happens in the national media and everybody's getting down on somebody. And somebody's usually going to stand up and say, oh, well, yeah, but let he who is without sin throw the first stone. Well, you're not perfect. You've made mistakes. How can you condemn this person? And I think this is where we're missing a little bit of, of what Jesus is saying here. What, whatever he was writing on the ground, maybe it was a, a ploy for time or whatnot, he, he was allowing the word of God to sink into people's hearts. And he's saying, so he quotes the law to the teachers of the law. The person without guilt in this is allowed to throw the first stone. Well, the witnesses saw what they saw, okay, and assuming it's all true and legit, and it, it probably, probably is, um, that's what they saw. But they were guilty in the issue because they didn't bring the guy. They were guilty for a lot of reasons. And so God is in your midst and he's going to judge. Is the judgment going to fall on her or is the judgment going to fall on the accusers? The very fact that the guy wasn't there, Jesus was saying, guys, it's locked and loaded. And the gun's not going to be, it's not pointing at her. So are are you ready to pull the trigger? Because you know your heart's in this. Search your hearts. Are you without guilt? Because if you throw that stone and you're without guilt, it comes down to, God's going to bring it back on you a lot more. So be be certain. And it says, then they left one by one, the older ones first. Why do you think the older ones left first? They they had the most sins, and I think they had the most experience with being wrong. They They knew that they weren't perfect, that their hearts weren't pure. They, as teachers of the law and those who'd been there longer, they knew what was really true, and I'm guiltless before God, and what is just me and religion and condemnation and my agenda. And those with greater life experience, those with greater experience with the Lord and with the word and teaching others, you don't learn something till you have to teach it. They were the ones I think that realized first, I I am not guiltless in this. And if I have anything to do with this, um, it's coming back on me. Whoa, that was close. Thank you, Lord. Walking away. The younger ones, (laughs) more certain more certain about their, their rightness, more certain about the law, more certain about this is the way it is in the category. It took them longer. But I think they really, whoa, Gamaliel just walked away. What the heck? Whoa. Ichabod, it's like all these, all my teachers, all my heroes. Wait a minute. I'm guilty too. And everyone left. So the sinner is now left with a sinless one. God alone could judge. God alone was the witness. God alone, according to the law of Moses, would be able to throw the first stone. But we don't see Jesus saying, I'll give you three steps. He says, where are your accusers? They're not here. Then neither do I accuse you. He could have justly, legitimately, according to the law of Moses, accused her, condemned her, because he saw and his heart was pure. But in the place of the judgment, the righteous judgment he could have rendered, he said, I do not condemn you. Go and leave your life of sin. The reason it's translated there, and it's a good translation, is because it's, it isn't, the, the go and sin no more means <laughs> you got to work for it, right? I have forgiven you. 
I have, I have saved your life, and now you owe me by not committing another sin. And if you do, it's sort of like probation. Okay, I'm not going to write you up for this one. But if you, you do anything, even get a parking ticket this next year, we're throwing the book at you. And if you look at go and sin no more, it kind of comes off that way. Don't commit any sin. And Jesus isn't saying that. He's saying change your sin orientation. Whatever you thought completed you, whatever you thought you need, whatever you thought you needed to color outside the line, how you were certain that I wasn't here and, and you could better serve yourself here, you need to reorient it. Now that you've seen me for who I am, reorient. Rather than following your life of sin and whatever you're seeking, you met me, turn around, repent, and now follow me, seek after me. It's not, the standard isn't perfection, the standard isn't sinlessness. It's a change in heart, it's a change in orientation. She was certain God was distant. God was not there. God was not there for her. She needed this. She wanted this. She was court. I don't know what the deal was. I don't know what the situation. But whatever the orientation was where God just wasn't in the picture and it was here, he's saying, leave your life of sin. Leave your pursuit of yourself. Come toward me. You were certain that I was this harsh God of the law. And I can see why with all these guys teaching you. But now that you met me, mercy triumphs over judgment. See, this isn't a teaching that only the sinless can judge. He's not saying that. He's saying judge righteously. Last week, uh, Jesus was telling the Pharisees, don't judge by appearance. Don't judge by your agendas. Judge by righteous judgment, which means you're going to need God inside and out to really work this through. It's not a teaching that since we're all imperfect, we just let people be. It's not saying that at all. In fact, quite the opposite. We want to do anything but just let people be, recognizing our own sin and our brokenness and our need of God. That's a clarion call for saying, this is the kind of God that we really know, that we really need, who meets us in our brokenness, in our pain, in our, in our, our complexity, in our unfinished story, and writes it so differently. And it's not a teaching that those who are more righteous in one area can judge others in that area. It's a teaching about congruency. Which God are we certain that we are sharing with others? Which God are we certain that we know? Everything we've experienced of God up to this point in time has been mediated through so many things that are broken, that are limited, that are imperfect. And so God continuously breaks through in relationship. God continually surprises us, meets us in the inconvenient moments of life, meets us in the crisis, meets us in the, the monotony, meets us at every point that we would see him come near Emmanuel. Not the letter of the law, not the guilt that's been rubbed into our sores, not the type of people that we know we can't be and we're tired of trying to measure up, but a, a people who are desired, a people who are beloved, a people that God wants to set free, that we can worship, that we can become so much more than we are, and we haven't written ourselves out of the story. We haven't sinned too much or, or knowing better or, or whatever where God's disappointed and checking all the ways we haven't measured up. But to the extent we keep checking the box with others shows that we haven't gotten it ourselves. And God, the good news is he's still at work with us. From the condemning to the condemned, God still wants to break through and say, mercy triumphs over judgment. I am here. I can condemn you and I don't. Most famous verse in scripture. I'm not saying this, God is. 
For God so loved the world, the world in rebellion, the world in ignorance, the world that has gone astray, the world giving him the finger. So for God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son, all that he has, all that he is, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. God has come to you to save you, not to condemn you. And that means in our pursuit of God, we don't have to earn. We don't have to measure up. God is not checking the box. God is not looking at letter of the law, looking at areas to call us out. But God is for us. God is with us. God loves us. God is lifting up. And it has everything to do with intimacy and vulnerability and allowing us to be us before God. What the Pharisees with the teachers of the law did is they closed their hearts off to God. See, they were trying to be right rather than righteous. So we all want to be right. We want to be right. We want to be correct. We want to win. We want to put others in their place. We want to be above. We want to be more than. And we'll use the Bible. We'll use scripture. We'll use Christian service, participation, uh, anything we can to separate us from the crowd so I am right and you are wrong. And as Christians, we double down because we can pull God on our side. Rather than God's desire that we can let go of that. I am a sinner. I'm wrong. I'm broken. I need you, God. And we can be righteous. The right way to go. The right fit. How we are made. Where our souls resonate. Where it makes sense. Where we cry out, Abba, Father, I am yours. Nothing can steal me away. Not even me. Not even my stupidity. or My, my dark heart condemning others. Or all these other things. I can be free. For my need to be right as well. And the greater tragedy here, that woman, 180 degrees, but nothing changed for those who knew the law more intimately than her. And God was still holding out hope for them. True righteousness is to do as God does. I do not condemn you. Go and leave your life of sin. I have not come to call you out, but to show you the better way, where you belong. And for those of you having a little bit of a theological problem with this, God did come to condemn sin sin in the flesh, in himself. So everything we condemn in others, brothers and sisters in Christ, has already been condemned in Christ, no longer exists. Is our motivation to separate? Or is our motivation to say, how can we yet lay hold of more God How can I help you to be more intimate? How can I help me to be more intimate, more vulnerable, more real? Because there is only one person God loves. There is only one person God died for. And it isn't the person that stands apart from the crowd. It isn't the person that's right. It isn't the person that prays more or knows the word more or serves more, is more faithful or shown up more or whatever. It's the person with a broken heart. A smoldering wick, a broken reed. God will by no means extinguish or break off, but he will accept all who come to him and raise them up in the last day. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you are up close and personal, not a footnote in history, not a story that we can marvel at, but your presence, your intimacy in our life. Lord God, whatever might be standing in the way of my heart my understanding of my obedience, 
where I am certain this is the way you are. This is the way it needs to be. That it, and anything that is not true of you, I pray in your mercy, you that breakthrough to me as you really are. Extent that it is my agenda trying to justify myself, trying to scramble and make myself something more than I am now, that I can just let go of that, Father, and put that energy into laying a hold of you, knowing you have already laid hold of me fully. And to the extent that this resonates with anyone here, Lord, may we know you, a God who is absolutely just and righteous and could condemn any of us and chooses not to that we would know you as you really are, that we would be whole and complete in you. We love you. We thank you. In Christ's name, amen. I'd like to invite the deacons forward that we would celebrate and display this supreme act of love. While we are yet, were yet, will be still sinners, Christ died for us, why we were caught in the very act, why others sought to pervert justice, why God saw into our hearts in scrambling, why God saw us condemning others blind to our own sin, Christ died for us. Christ condemned sin in himself that we would be released. We would be set free. And more than an eternal decree, it's a thunderclap that raised across the heavens and it is finished. God wants each of us to know personally what that feels like, what that looks like. So God came near, not to condemn the world, but through Christ to save the world. And that's relationship at a time, a person at a time. And we recognize not to us, not because of us, not anything we could have done, not anything we will do. We are free. But because of his great love, we can say God is just. God is merciful. I am his forevermore. And so as the deacons are distributing this, they're just symbols, some juice, some bread. If you are checking out faith, just let it pass. This is just a reminder. We get so caught up with ourselves, we forget it's about Jesus. So we need this reminder. Um, if you're working stuff out with God, let it pass. That's totally cool. No pressure. But here's an opportunity to let God's spirit speak to you. What does he want to tell you? And how does he want to be more intimate? So please um, let God speak as the worship band plays. Please, please distribute deacons. And we'll all partake together at the end.